turn to Luke chapter 9 and the passage entitled The Transfiguration, that's Luke 9, 28. Luke 9, um, 28. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which was about to bring, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. This passage then um, records for us quite a remarkable episode in the life of Jesus. It's referred to in uh, Matthew and Mark as well. There are some slight differences in this Luke passage that I want to highlight for us this morning. But essentially the context is for us that, as so often, the disciples seem to have failed to have understood just who Jesus really is. We've had this moment of revelation from Peter where Jesus asks him and the other disciples, who do people say I am? This is also in chapter 9, verse 19. And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. And Jesus asks them, but what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he has a revelation from heaven that, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one promised in the Old Testament. He indeed is going to be the one who brings salvation. But nevertheless, despite that, Peter can't handle the idea that that will involve Jesus laying down his life. Jesus says he must suffer and die. And Peter, as the representative of the others, really challenges Jesus Challenges Jesus on that. And it's not recorded for us in this Luke um, version of the whole situation, but it is in Matthew and Mark. And you will remember probably that Jesus very strongly rebukes Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. So the disciples only really have a partial understanding about Jesus who he is, why he's come, and what he's setting out to achieve, what his mission really is all about. And indeed, what it actually means to follow him as well. So Jesus takes three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, almost his inner circle, if you like, his closest friends, up a mountain. And he takes them there, no doubt, because that's remote, that's isolated, and he can have quality time with them. They're away from the crowds. They're away from other people who might interfere And he has a really important purpose in doing this. And it says here, in verse 28 of chapter 9, the passage we've just read, in fact, that he takes them up the mountain to pray. In the other Gospels, he doesn't mention that. It doesn't say he takes them up the mountain to pray. But I would imagine he probably takes takes them up the mountain to pray for them. To pray that they understand something more of who he really is. That it will mean he is having to die and then rise again. So Jesus takes these three men up the mountain 
and they have an amazing experience. Jesus is transformed before them. The word used is transfigured. It just means really changed remarkably. And his appearance alters, and he has this brilliant glow about him, really showing us something of his divine nature, his glory. And then Moses and Elijah appear, two Old Testament heroes. They appear with Jesus. They're talking with him. This is incredible for the disciples. And after that, as if that wasn't enough, God speaks. God speaks and tells them to listen to his son. And he's proclaiming that his son is the one he has chosen. So these disciples have quite a mountaintop experience. But actually, this episode isn't essentially about a euphoric experience. It's about receiving revelation of who Jesus is and why he's come and what he's setting out to do. And this morning, I just believe that God would remind us, even if we've been Christians for a long time, of some key things about Jesus, about what he came to achieve, what he's won for us, what he wants to build in and through us, even among us this morning. It's interesting that it says the disciples were rather sleepy. <laughs> and we, we live in a culture where, it seems to me, whether it's a Western thing or a British thing, I don't know, um, but we're always tired. And I confess that I quite frequently make reference to the fact that I am tired. Um, and we live busy lives. I'm sure that's at the root of it in many senses. But we live in a culture where a lot of people are tired. We're always, for some reason, tired. Don't fall asleep this morning. But just as God revealed so much to these disciples, even in their tiredness, suddenly they were awake. I believe God this morning, by his spirit, wants to awaken us to some wonderful things about Jesus that maybe we take for granted. Maybe we've begun to forget about and overlook. He wants to wake us up. And... We know Paul's famous prayer in 1 Ephesians 8 refers to him petitioning God to awaken the recipients of that letter, to awaken their hearts, the eyes of their hearts, to see Jesus as he really is, by revelation. And that's my prayer for us this morning. So I want to highlight a few things that we maybe take for granted, maybe have overlooked, maybe have become dull to, so that we are awake to these glorious things about Jesus The first thing we see then is Jesus, as I said, his appearance is dramatically changed. It says that as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. That's quite an astonishing event. And really what's going on there is Jesus' appearance changes. It's highlighting for us his divinity. He is the Son of God. And God's very voice speaks and confirms that for us. It says... This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. God is endorsing Jesus as his son. Jesus is the son of God, even God himself. And those words there from God allude to several Old Testament passages, one of which is Psalm 2. One of which is Psalm 2, which in verse 7 says this. He said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. And that psalm is a psalm that would be sung by the Israelites on the occasion of a new king being crowned. And it speaks of a great reign, a great kingdom, extending territory, but ultimately 
it is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God, and his inheritance is the nations. This is who Jesus is. But more than that, Jesus, having his appearance changed in this way, so that the glory of God is manifest, it points to the fact that actually, he isn't just going to die, because the disciples had locked on to this idea, he's going to die, we can't handle that. What's this about a Messiah, a Saviour dying? That doesn't make sense. But Jesus always coupled that with reference to the fact that he would rise again. But for some reason, they often overlook that, and they seem to forget the fact that he is saying, yes, I will die, but I will so rise. And this glory from God upon Jesus points to that. He's going to rise again. He's going to ascend, and he's going to be glorified at the right hand of God. Jesus has the most remarkable career. He is God made flesh. He leaves heaven and comes to earth. He lives the perfect life. No one had come to heaven and lived on earth before. No one could have lived the perfect life that he lived. He went to the cross. He died in our place. He conquered sin and death. And he rose again. And he ascended into heaven. And is at the right hand of God. That is an amazing career. What a trajectory. And it's not about going from great and it diminishing as he walks this earth, as if he's got any less glory. He is still a son of God, but he returns to God the Father. And in an age where we're obsessed with celebrities, and they seem to so often need to reinvent themselves to establish a new image for themselves, even really degrading themselves somewhat and going into jungles on the other side of the world to try and perhaps raise their public profile, Jesus doesn't need to do that. Each of these events wasn't about him raising his public profile or reinventing himself. It was the purpose of God, and it was from one step of glory to another. His glory doesn't fade. It doesn't diminish. It's Jesus. He's the Son of God. I think it's really interesting that we do live in an age where we're obsessed with celebrities, television programs, magazines, and it seems to me that this age in which we live, we don't really have heroes anymore. If I talk to my school kids, who are your heroes? Well, they do name these celebrities, and no disrespect to these celebrities, maybe they write the odd book or the odd pop song, and they are quite odd, um, but they don't accomplish that much that merit, merits this type of adulation. In years gone by, in the Victorian age, we had people who took great risks and went to the ends of the earth in the name of discovery and exploration. They were pioneers. They were heroes, but we're obsessed with Celebrities and entertainment. But Jesus is the one we declare as the ultimate hero. Jesus is the ultimate pioneer. In Hebrews 12, too, it says, He is the author and perfecter of our faith. Author makes him sound like Enid Blyton. I read the famous five stories, they're great. And it's good as a film about her or a screenplay coming out. But Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the pioneer. The word author there means pioneer. He has made a way for us to know God. He hasn't just gone to the North Pole or South Pole. He's gone to the depths of hell. He's come back to life and he's at the right hand of God. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the pioneer like no pioneer. He's broken back boundaries like no one else has ever done. And we now live in the good of all he's accomplished. Jesus is glorious. And this is what this event is pointing to. Something of his glory. Jesus is worthy, as we've been singing, of our worship. He is worthy of our lives. And I know for me, a key revelation in my walk with God was essentially this, that Jesus is worthy of my whole life. 
And I've been looking into various things. I've been on a quest, if you like, to find who is worthy of my life. What is worthy of my whole life? And I'm so thankful that God showed me it is Jesus. He is worthy of everything. He is worthy of everything. And I just feel compelled in my heart to challenge maybe teenagers here this morning. It's hard to stand out at school. It's hard to be known as a Christian. I don't deny that. Recently, uh, I've been looking on Facebook, and I've got old friends um, who I used to lead when they were young people. Now in their 20s in most cases. And they request to be my friend, and I say, yeah, sure. But I'm not always that thrilled. I mean, some of them have gone on with gods. But you just get their status, what they write about themselves. And you see pictures of what they're doing and where they're going. And I just had one picture, and really, it wrenches wrenches my heart, really, because he's he's obviously at a concert and really giving it all this. And he's probably had a few drinks. And I know he's not living for God anymore, and he was. But he's settling for the counterfeit. We raise our hands, not in worship of a pop star on a stage. We raise our hands in worship of God. We don't raise our hands in worship of a football team. Well, you can do. I used to. I still do occasionally. We raise our hands in worship of God. People going to big events, big concerts, worshipping. They're nearly there in a way, but they're also a million miles off what they've been made to live for. It's God. And also just getting drunk. As if that is what life is all about. It's the counterfeit. Don't get drunk on wine. Be filled with the Spirit. Can you see how people, young people particularly, are so close to what the real deal is all about? What this life is meant to be all about. It's about raising hands in worship to God. It's about being filled with the Spirit. It's not about just doing this in a crowd at a big pop concert and getting bevered up. That isn't what God has made you for. He's made you to follow Jesus. And yes, there is a cost to count. We know that. It's a radical saviour, we know. And it's a radical life we're called to. We find in Luke 9, Jesus refers to this. He says... In Luke 9, 26, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man, sorry, uh, just before that actually, uh, Luke 9, 23, sorry, then he said to them all, anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? And you might have years ahead of you. I just want to encourage you, recognize how worthwhile Jesus is following. How glorious he is, how great he is. That he wants you to know the real life that you were made to live. Not the counterfeit. Not the counterfeit that the world offers. It's not the real deal. It's following Jesus. So the disciples see who Jesus is. And... They must have questioned whether he was worth following. You're telling me you're going to die, Jesus, and we're expected to follow you? We've left everything for that. And he gives them a revelation that, yes, he is worthy. He is the one who will die but rise again. And even come again. He's going to return in glory. As it says in Luke 9, the verses I started to read a moment ago, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus is going to return in glory. That's amazing. That's what is going to happen at the end of time. We also see um, not just Jesus glorified, but Moses and Elijah appear, these two Old Testament figures. And in Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses, just prior to his death, promises the Israelites that God will send them another prophet like him, who the people will listen to. And at the end of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, The prophet there writes of the fact that 
Elijah or one like him will return and come back. And some people thought Jesus was another Moses or another Elijah. But he was far more than just another prophet. It's interesting to note what they're actually talking about. Jesus, Moses and Elijah, it says, are talking about Jesus' departure. You'll see that in verse 31. They spoke about his departure, the departure of Jesus, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. And presumably that's referring to Jesus' death, his departure from this life. Temporarily, he's going to die and be dead for three days. But also, it's probably referring to his ascension, where he'll leave this world. And that's mentioned in Luke 9, verse 46. Verse 46. Where is it? Oh, verse um, 51, sorry. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, taken up to heaven. So Jesus is going to experience an exodus, maybe in two senses, his death, but also his ascension. And what the disciples should have probably realized with these two figures appearing was that Jesus was giving them some insights and clues into his mission. Why he came to earth? What did he come to achieve? What was his goal? And essentially what we see from these great Old Testament heroes is that Jesus' mission was basically threefold. He came to defeat sin, death and the devil. You see, Moses and Elijah represent the Old Covenant really. And the Old Covenant, the history of God's people in the Old Testament, is really framed by the Exodus where God brings them out, out, of, brings them out of Egypt and delivers them, rescues them from their slavery. And then... The, ex- the, the exile, where despite this great intervention from God, despite God's grace in their history, they rebel against him, and the ultimate outworking of God's judgment upon them is that they're taken into exile, they're taken and deported and placed in foreign nations. And the real problem for Israel is this. They have a problem with sin. The book of Isaiah prophesies about their return from exile. God will bring them out of exile. He will bring them back from Babylon and establish them again once more in the promised land. Jerusalem will be rebuilt. And Isaiah, in the second half of the book, describes that event like a second exodus. The language there about waters being parted, about God leading them in the the wasteland of the wilderness. It's like another exodus. And the Israelites in exile were looking for that day. They were waiting for that day where they could return to Israel, as if that would be the answer to all their problems. But most importantly, what Isaiah seems to be pointing towards is something greater than just a return from exile to the promised land. Because the real problem for the people of God wasn't political or geographical, it was the heart's. It was their sinful condition. They had had years of hearing from God and yet rebelling against God. It's almost as if they couldn't help themselves. They couldn't change their hearts. They couldn't make themselves a new people. And that's where we get these promises of a new covenant, where God will transform the heart of the people. How will that happen? How will this exodus not out of captivity in a foreign land, but out of captivity to sin, happen. Well, famously, Isaiah describes for us in chapter 3 that this will be accomplished through 
what's known as really a suffering servant. A man will lay down his life. He will die a cruel death and then rise again dealing with this problem of sin. So Isaiah 53, verse 7. Of course, it's speaking about Jesus hundreds of years before his crucifixion. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And the suffering of his soul, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So here's Isaiah, as I say, hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, prophesying the ministry of Jesus, his death and resurrection. Jesus' death, paying the penalty for sin. His resurrection, conquering the power of sin. So Moses and Elijah appearing is not just coincidental. It's highlighting for us that the people of God, the Israelites, needed sin dealing with. And we need an inner transformation of our hearts. We can't live by a written code. We can't seek in our own strength to please God. We can't actually, in and of ourselves, manage to live a good life. Because it's just by law. And it results to legalism. It results in legalism. Because we needed our hearts changing. And that's what God did in Jesus. We also see that Jesus' mission was to conquer death. And it's interesting, there are unusual circumstances surrounding the death of Moses. He dies before he goes into the promised land, and God tells him that will happen. And yet, we don't quite know where he died or where he was buried. So there's some mystery attached to the death of Moses. Elijah, of course, didn't actually die. He was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. So he leaves this life in an unusual manner. So both those Old Testament figures have a certain mystery surrounding them in terms of their deaths. Jesus died on a cross. There's no doubt that that cruel execution caused his life to be taken from him. He couldn't possibly have survived. He was laid in a tomb, a tomb, and he lay there for three days, dead, but he rose again. So in a sense, there's no mystery surrounding the death and resurrection of Jesus. He died, but he rose again, and he conquered death. If we turn to 1 Corinthians 15, One Corinthians 15, it speaks of Jesus' great victory over death. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 55, uh, following. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. 
and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gave us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Jesus has defeated death. He rose again. But Jesus also conquered the powers of darkness, the devil. And we know that Moses and Elijah, in their lives, witnessed great victories. Unlikely victories. Last gasp victories, really. Moses, of course, leads the people out of Egypt. They're pursued by the Egyptian chariots. They come to the Red Sea, and really they've got nowhere to go. They've come to a cul-de-sac. What's next? But of course, as the Egyptian hordes near them, God parts the waters, and they are miraculously delivered. A last gasp victory in unusual circumstances. God pulls through, and they are saved. And Elijah, he's on Mount Carmel, isn't he? And... He's involved in this great contest with the prophets of Baal. Elijah standing for God. And he, in faith, challenges the prophets of Baal and says, look, you call upon your gods, you call upon them then, and see if the fire falls. You do that, and nothing happens. And he says, right, now I'm going to call on my God. In fact, I want my servants to pour water on this altar. Let's just show how wonderful God is. He doesn't need dry ground. He doesn't need conditions suitable for a forest fire. He's still going to come through on this. And, of course, God sends the fire. An unlikely victory because God intervenes. A last gasp victory that God brings about. And in the same way, Jesus accomplishes the most glorious victory. He does that at the cross. And where Moses brought deliverance from slavery and captivity to a tyrant... In Pharaoh, even Egyptian gods and occult oppression, just as Elijah stood firm and God came through in the conflict with the occult prophets and their gods and those powers of darkness, even more so Jesus at the cross. It says in Colossians 2, 19, made a public spectacle of the devil and all his forces. In his death, Jesus won the greatest victory. At the cross, the powers of darkness were irrevocably defeated. There's no comeback for them. In the most unlikely circumstances, God claims a great victory. Greater than what Moses witnessed. Greater than what Elijah saw. The greatest of all vindications. And Jesus defeats the power of Satan. So Jesus' mission was to come and defeat sin. Defeat death. And defeat the devil. What's our response to this? If you don't know Jesus, this is the time to respond to this great news that Jesus has defeated these forces so that you might know God. And the time is urgent. The time is pressing. I urge you to respond to what Jesus has done for you. If you're a Christian, and I'm a Christian, what's our response to this? Well, I love... What happens after God brings the Hebrews out of slavery in the Exodus? If you just turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 15. Turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 15. After that great deliverance, the people celebrate. And we have what's called the Song of Moses and Miriam. And you'll see it running there for several verses. Moses leads the people in singing a song of praise. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider is hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. 
My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. So a song of great celebration on witnessing what God has done for them. And if you turn to um, 1 Kings 18, after this incredible display of God's power, sending the fire at Mount Carmel, the people acknowledge that God is great. Now, they don't sing a long song on this occasion. They just do it in a matter of words. And it says in 1 Kings 18.39 that the people fell to the ground and declared, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. It was almost as if it was too breathtaking to utter anything more than that. Simply the glorious truth that God is great. And I just believe, as a people, we have every reason to celebrate. So it's great when people pray out and give thanks to God. But I believe sometimes we're too quiet. On a Friday after school, I like to play football, um, either with some teachers, or if none of them want to play because they want to go home, I like to play with some students. And so, uh, well, this Friday was gone, I played with some year 11s, but last year I started playing with them when they were year 10s, just uh, getting my old Tomei trainers out of the boot of the car, where they have to live, um, wearing my school uniform, as I call it, okay, and uh, just putting them on and playing in the yard, the playground, with some of these boys. They're lively lads, right? They're quite boisterous. They're quite cheeky, but playing football with them, it's good because it brings about a bit of a connection. And I like to think I'm 16 or 17 again. Um, so obviously I've got to prove that I'm better than them, and naturally that's not too difficult. Um, but what I noticed was this. Now, being a teacher, I'm very bossy. Being a teacher, it, it's a danger that I'm a bit of a control freak. I, I have to be careful. I don't want to organise everything, control everything. But um, when we're playing, what I notice is this. Um, suddenly they all go quiet. So in the classroom, blah, 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 noisy, 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 be quiet, be quiet, no, they won't. They just talk and talk and talk. Before we start playing properly, they're kicking the ball around, just chatting, being really loud and leery, as ever. And then suddenly we start playing, and everything goes quiet. Now when you're playing football, don't worry if you don't know much about this, let me enlighten you. First of all, they need to do what I say, because I know best. Um, but they don't do this. When I receive the ball with my back to a player, I need to know one of two things. Is there a man on? That means, is someone about to tackle me? Or have I got time? Right, that's all I need to know. Just tell me one of those two things, everyone. Right? Um, man on or time. Do they do that? No, they don't. They're just completely silent. And then I get annoyed. Why didn't you tell me man on? Or tell me time. If I've got man on, I'll release it. I'll lay it off. You've got the ball. If I've got time, I'll turn and do a bit of magic. All right? <laughs> Not occult magic, just a bit of skills. So, they just don't do that. They go really quiet. I don't understand it. And for some reason, people of God, whether it's here on a Sunday, perhaps in whatever core group you're a part of, we can talk and have fun and laughter, and suddenly it's time to worship, and we go really quiet. What's that about? I don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense. Just as I'm confused by the perversity of the year 10 boys all leery and loud in the classroom, everywhere else, something in the football pitch, talk boys, talk, I'm telling you, you can talk now, and they don't say a word, ever. It, do you know what? They still don't do it after ten weeks of me telling them. Right? They just don't. I don't know what it is. But as the people of God, for some reason, we can be reserved, we can be reticent, and we have every reason to issue forth a great song of praise like Moses did, or just a line of expressing, expressing the awesome glory of God. He is great. 
it's so important that we recognize we've got every reason to praise God. And for whatever reason, we can be afraid to open our mouths. Maybe we think, well, it's always the same people who pray out. Let them do it. They're doing such a good job of it. Or not. I don't know. <laughs> um, oh, I'm not going to do it. I'll leave it. Now, I know in a, a more formal setting like this with a few hundred people, you might be in danger of what I call a prayer collision. Right? And that can be quite, I find it, well, it can be a bit embarrassing, but it's not a problem because we can lighten up about this. But if someone starts praying here and someone starts praying there simultaneously, sometimes they don't know they're both praying and they'll carry on. Or sometimes, sometimes perhaps they'll both be too polite. Oh, no, after you, no, after you, after you, and no one prays. Or they'll both keep going. But I'm yet to come across a triple prayer collision. That is my ambition, to be in a church where there's a triple prayer collision. So three people start at once. That'd be fantastic. It's not a problem if it happens. Don't be so worried about it and just be willing to let the Spirit lead you and, and bring your praise. For out the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Let's be people of praise. So when Moses and Elijah appeared, these disciples were getting an insight into Jesus' mission to conquer sin and death and Satan. Thirdly, we have God speaking, God's voice. And it's interesting that God speaking combines probably three verses from the Old Testament. So God says, this is my son whom I have chosen, listen to him. And it's, as I say, a combination of at least three Old Testament verses, probably Psalm 2 uh, that we read earlier and verse 7, Isaiah 42 verse 1, and probably Genesis 22. We'll come on to those in a short while. But what it shows for us is this. How did God speak? He spoke through his word. He spoke through the scriptures that Jesus would have meditated upon as a young boy. Jesus knew the Old Testament. Jesus knew the Bible as he had it really well. And just to encourage you, don't be intimidated by the Old Testament. There are some great books you can buy to get a way in to the bulk of the Bible, as we have it, the Old Testament. And you might think, well, where do I begin? Just begin. <laughs> That's what I would say. And you could think, well, it's going to take years to get to know this. Well, it will. But make a start, and it will pay off. Year on and year out, just keep reading and studying it, and you will become familiar with this incredible part of our Bible. And I, I sometimes find it a bit frustrating when people say, Jesus is concealed in the old, revealed in the new. I don't like that. I think he's revealed in the Old as well. I think actually the Old says as much about Jesus as the New Testament. Sometimes it's a bit more difficult to find it, but there are books to help. There are some great books giving an overview of the Old Testament. There's some really helpful guides you can get at the bookstore. There are some really good books on offer right now. The Bible Speaks Today series and the greyer ones, not because they're drab, just the colouring. Um, they've got books there on each Old Testament book and you can go in a bit deeper. But I encourage you to do that, to get into the Old Testament. Um, I remember where I used to go to church, uh, uh, one, one guy, and it's not judging him, but he was, he was probably in his 50s and he said, yeah, I've never read the whole Bible. And I thought, but you're a small group leader. I thought, that's a bit alarming. And it's not to heap condemnation, but surely it's the most precious book and it's the word of God and it equips us and it speaks to us. And Jesus would have studied it and meditated upon it. So should we. So God speaks through the means of the Bible. This voice from God combines scriptures from the Old Testament. We also see that Jesus lived with a biblical understanding of, of his identity and his mission. So Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8, as I've read them before, 
They refer to Jesus inheriting the nations. Jesus knew his destiny was to rule over the whole cosmos, the whole earth. That's where all things were heading for him. And that's where history is going, even today. And it's important we have a biblical understanding of our identity and our destiny. So if you just turn to Romans 8. Romans is a great book. And it's fantastic Arnold's preaching through it. And it's full of truth. It's full of the truth about who we are in Jesus. Our identity in Christ and our destiny in him. So just by way of a sample of wonderful scriptures for us. Romans 8 verse 1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. In Christ we no longer are guilty for our sin. No condemnation. Continuing in Romans 8, verse 15, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. We are children of God. In Jesus, we're children of God. That's our identity. And then Romans 8, a bit later, verse 37 says, Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are conquerors in Christ. In fact, the Greek means super conquerors. That's fantastic. That's our identity. And at the end of the chapter, it says in verse 39, um, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. These are truths about who we are in Christ. There's no condemnation for those in Christ. No guilt, no shame. Whatever the devil says, whatever accusation he brings, whatever our own internal monologue pronounces to us about our lives, well, we need to make sure the word of God takes precedent. We are not condemned. And we are children of God. We're adopted into his family. His spirit testifies with our spirit that we belong to him. You might say, well, how do I know? Well, you do by that conviction within. You know that you know that you know. doesn't matter what you feel like. It's truth. But that's our identity. Our destiny is caught up with Jesus. So in Romans 8, in the middle of that great chapter... It says in verse 19, the creation, that's the whole cosmos, the earth included, waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. And going down into the last part of verse 21, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So Jesus is going to return and rule the nations and the universe. And when he does so, those of us who know him, Christians, are going to rule it alongside him. That is fantastic. I can't get my head around that. That's my destiny. It's my destiny. It's not to go increasingly bald. Well, it is. It's not to develop an increasingly large tummy. It may be. My mortal body is getting increasingly frail. But I'm being renewed by God, and one day I'll have a new body, a glorified body. What age will I be at that point in time? I don't know. 37, that's what I am now, maybe. Um, probably not. But I will reign... Over creation with Jesus. That's my destiny. And it's good to remember that. We're not bound to weakness. We're not bound to flesh or the things of this world. We have this great destiny lined up for us. That's where we're heading. And Jesus knew his identity and destiny from the Bible. And it's important that we do too. But Jesus also had a biblical understanding of the fact that he would have to suffer. And yes, Psalm 2, verses 7 to 8 are referred to in these words from God. This is my son, whom I've chosen. Listen to him. But also two other important Old Testament texts. One of which is Genesis 22, and the famous story about Abraham being willing to sacrifice Isaac. God commands Abraham to present his son as a sacrifice. 
And Abraham's prepared to go through with it. And the last minute, as you know, God intervenes to stop that happening. But it speaks of sacrifice. And Jesus, of course, laid down his life. He knew his life was moving towards Jerusalem. And he set his face to go to the cross. He knew he would have to suffer. And another reference there in those words from God is Isaiah 42. What's known as the first servant song. This material about a figure who will be given by God, who will have to die to pay for our sins. Jesus knew that he would have to suffer. Jesus knew that there would be sacrifice in living in obedience to God. And it's really important that we recognise that when things are apparently difficult, when circumstances are tough, it doesn't mean necessarily we're living in sin. It doesn't necessarily mean that God's favour has been taken from us. It means we're following, probably very often, the footsteps of Jesus Christ. And we will suffer. And we will have to make sacrifices. There is a cost to count in following Jesus. So it says, back in Romans, Romans 8, at the end of verse 17, speaks of us being children of God, we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So suffering precedes glory. It did for Jesus, and it does for us. It can mean different things at different times for different people, but it is inevitable that we will experience suffering. And Paul goes on there in verse 18 to say, I consider that our present sufferings are worth nothing, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So the suffering we're going through now, whatever it is, not making light of it, it can be really difficult, but we know that the glory of God that we're going to come into is greater. So Jesus had a biblical understanding of his identity and his destiny, but he also understood that he would suffer. And it's important that we understand these things as well. Some things that we misunderstand aren't so important. For example, at a student lunch recently, I sort of sat down and I, I joined the conversation midway through. And I was hearing someone speaking about having an interview at Meadowhall. Um, and he was referring to having an interview at the Apple shop. And I was thinking, oh, right, that's interesting. Now, this young man, he might be here this morning, I'm not going to embarrass him, but he, he's from London, and I just pictured him Right then, thinking, right, so back in London, maybe he worked in Camden Market on the fruit and veg with his cloth cap and his, his little uh, apron with the money in. That's good, yeah, that's, that's good. Coming up here, settling in and getting a job. And he talked about this interview at Apple, and um, the Apple shop, and uh, I was intrigued. And uh, someone asked him, so do you get any special deals at the Apple shop if you get the job? And he said, well, yeah, twice a year, funnily enough, I get, I get 25% off. I was thinking, right, yeah, that... Okay, so twice a year you want to really bring in the apples, don't you? You want to buy as many as you can. Um, but then I remember my wife telling me that you can't really freeze apples. That becomes a bit of a problem. Where's the benefit then of having 25% off the apples twice a year? I was intrigued by this. And then suddenly this young man started to say, yeah, and actually I'm a real apple geek. And I thought, hey, people are into all sorts of things uh, by way of hobby and interest. And you've got a real, um, you've got a real fascination with apples. That's interesting. And I began then to realise he's talking about computers. It was about Apple Macs, the Apple Mac shop. Some of the misunderstandings are just funny, and I found that quite amusing. Um, that's not that important, but misunderstandings about who we are in Christ, or the fact that we might suffer in this life, they're really important. Some Christians question whether they're saved because maybe they sin occasionally. Well, we will. They might question whether they're saved because... They don't feel great emotion, or they can't pinpoint a most incredible experience. But it's important that we know the truth of who we are in Christ. And it's by faith 
See, this mountaintop experience for the disciples, the important thing was that God spoke. It wasn't just a nice feeling. It wasn't just an euphoric experience. It was that God spoke. And so often, the mountaintop experiences in the Bible are combined with God speaking. Mount Sinai, the law is given. God speaks. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks. Here, the transfiguration, God speaks. It's not about pursuing experience. It's about standing on truth in terms of who we are in Christ and also the fact we will suffer. So that when things are hard, we aren't thinking, oh no, what's going on? This is unusual. I should be surprised by this, shouldn't I? No. It is what it is to live so often as a Christian. When God speaks to Jesus on this occasion, it echoes in many ways the words God speaks at Jesus' baptism. This is my son. With him I'm well pleased. So God speaks on these two strategic occasions, both of which are on the threshold of really testing times for Jesus. After the baptism, Jesus goes into the wilderness and confronts Satan. After the transfiguration, he's going to Jerusalem to die. God speaks at strategic times in our lives. Often when God speaks, it's because there could be a tough time coming. And maybe he doesn't speak to us in that tough time. Jesus in the wilderness, there's no reference to God speaking to him then. It's Jesus standing on scripture, resisting the enemy. In Gethsemane, there's no reference to God speaking to Jesus then. It's Jesus saying, your will be done, three times. In other words, he's not hearing from God, it would seem. God seems silent. But what he knows is God has spoken. And when we're going through testing times, we feel maybe God's not speaking to us. He seems silent, if anything. Remember what he has said. Remember what God has said to you. That's my experience in big changes in my life. God spoke to me about taking big steps and making big changes. And I needed those confirmations from Scripture to really step out in faith and commit to that. But more importantly, since those changes have come about, I'm not talking about marriage, by the way, because <laughs> that's great. Um, the testing and the trials and the hard challenges of, of new things, it's been what God has said to me that has meant I've been able to stand and know that it was right, that it was of God. Sometimes I've not heard from God for weeks or things or months during a tough time, and it's hard, but I go back to what I've written down and what God has said. And that's what Jesus relied upon, what God has said on the brink of challenging times. Finally, so we've seen that God shows Jesus to be divine, who Jesus really is. We see that God shows Jesus to be one who comes to conquer sin and death and the devil. We see that God wants the disciples to understand really how Jesus lived. He lived by the word of God, his identity, his destiny. And finally, we've got these disciples, and they're amazing characters, aren't they? We've got these disciples, and really, I just think that what we have here is a preview of the church. What Jesus was looking for, what he was seeking to build in these men. It's a preview of the church. We know in Matthew 18, 20, it says, where two or three are gathered, I'll be with them. And in a sense, this is like a blueprint for church. Three people together. I'm glad there's more than three here this morning. But where people gather in Jesus' name, he is there. And Peter recognizes, he says, it's good to be here, Jesus. Well, who make up the church? Well, it is people like James, Peter, and John. They make up the church. Peter, reckless at times, outspoken, saying unfortunate things. James and John wanting to be sat next to Jesus in heaven, having the, the preferable seats there. These men weren't perfect. 
But despite their failures, Jesus didn't give up on them. Remember that Peter, just before this incident, had said to Jesus, you can't die. Don't be ridiculous. What a sort of Messiah would you be if that happened? And Jesus rebukes him very strongly. But that doesn't mean Jesus has nothing to do with them ever again. That doesn't mean he's now out of commission. I can't work with you. Just go away. No, Peter is included in this inner circle and taken up the mountain and encounters God in this glorious way. Jesus didn't give up on Peter. He dealt with him with grace. And there will be people who get your backs up. There will be people in church life who annoy you perhaps, who offend you maybe. But the point is this. We don't give up on each other. We extend grace. You see, Jesus didn't take the easy way out. He was committed to these men. He was standing there with Moses and Elijah. Can you imagine the conversation they could have had? Do you know what, Moses? Leading the people of God, it's just a nightmare. I know what you went through in the desert. All they're grumbling, all they're complaining. Not wanting to go into the promised land when you'd spied out the land and it was good. I can't believe how you put up with it. I'm just leaving. I'm getting out of here. And Elijah, yeah, the fire fell on Mount Carmel. And then weeks and months later, the people of God are just turning their back on him again. What are we meant to do with these people? But Jesus didn't take the easy way out. He could have gone back to heaven then. He could have got taken up to heaven right then on the mountain, but he didn't. He was committed to these people. And maybe if you're leading people, you might think, my word, I've, I've preached this, I've taught this, I've modelled this for weeks, for months, for years. Why don't the people get it? I feel like walking away from walking away and leaving and never coming back. But you don't do that. You extend grace. You don't give up on these people. That's how we're to live. You see, we're a covenant community of grace. And we are unique in the world because we work out our differences our tensions, even our conflicts with love. And we go to people and we put things right. And very often in doing that, God and his grace and his wisdom causes hearts to be forged together in a deeper way than ever before. I know in my life, I've had to deal with, with friends, really, in, in things we've been doing together in church life. And it's been humbling, but God's really blessed us as we've spoken honestly about misunderstandings or the way we've taken offence unwittingly. And, and God's cemented friendships They've deepened. But it's important to realise we aren't deliberately meant to be awkward. We shouldn't just think, well, what I'll do, I'll facilitate as much grace as possible amongst my brothers and sisters by being a real nuisance, by being really annoying, <laughs> because that's a wonderful ministry. I feel called to it. That's not what we should prioritise at all. Because in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says, we are being changed from one degree of glory to another. Jesus was transfigured on this mountain, and one day we'll be changed like that. But in the meantime, we're undergoing a process where we are being changed degree by degree from glory to glory. When I come in on a Sunday, I should see more of Jesus in you this week than I did last week. And you should see more of Jesus in me than you did last week. So we should be changed. It's really interesting as well that Jesus despite being misunderstood by those closest to him, having, having every reason to be frustrated and angry, he doesn't say, look, for goodness sake, disciples, let me put you straight on this. He doesn't do that. He lets God vindicate him. It's God speaking that vindicates Jesus. And maybe you feel misunderstood. Maybe you feel like saying, I need to put some things straight here. I need to get my voice heard. They need to know just who I am and what I'm all about. But my friend, I'll urge you, don't do that. Let God vindicate you. Let him vindicate you, as he did with Jesus. God's voice speaking is glorious, isn't it? And it was great to hear the contributions this morning. 
You see, God could just break into our meetings with an audible voice, as he does here. He could just make a pronouncement declaring who he is. But his design is that, as church, he does that through people. Why is that the case? Because he wants to encourage the one who brings the word and encourage the people who hear the word. So, for example, I, I was reminded as I was praying this morning, Alistair gave me a, a word in the, in the summer, just before the start of a new term. I had found out that I'd have this particularly challenging class with one individual who is notorious as quite a nightmare to teach. And I wasn't relishing the idea of having the class. It was well, getting me a bit stressed, I suppose. So Alistair had this word whereby he felt God was saying, I believe, Adrian, that God's equipped you to handle a difficult class and perhaps even a difficult individual. And it's been amazing because this class, yeah, it's been hard work. And this individual had a really severe confrontation with him the first lesson. But thereafter, for several months now, God's really helped me. God has equipped me. And they've become, maybe not my favorite class, but they're not my least favorite class. <laughs> and this individual, God's just helped me in praising him, really disarm his whole aggression. He doesn't know how to handle the praise I give him. Well done, you wrote three lines. That's brilliant. Everyone, he wrote three lines. Excellent. Do you remember the last lesson when, I won't give his name, X said this, and he, he just can't believe that a teacher's referring to something he said as a good answer last time. So God has, by his grace, helped me in that. And it was a word from someone here that really opened up a whole new area of trusting God in that situation. And God wants to speak to us for each other. He longs to speak to us for each other. I left where I was because I wanted to be part of a church that moved from the gifts of the Spirit. I feel myself still to be very much a novice, but I want to grow in these things. I can't settle for less than these things. I can't not be part of a church where these things are practiced because we're a body and we're to grow together, encourage one another, edify one another. So when you go to group, pray before you go and say, God, have you got anything for me to share with anyone? And you might feel like, oh, there's nothing of value that can come from my mouth. That's not true. The Spirit of God's in you. He wants to use you to bless others. Affirming who they are in God. God's destiny for them. That's what he longs to do among us. So the disciples have this great mountaintop experience, but crucially, they're receiving revelation about who Jesus is, what he came to do, how Jesus lived by the word of God, and what Jesus was building in them. And that's what he wants us to understand even this morning.